also want to celebrate something else with you that we have made it two-thirds of the way through the book of Acts. So kudos to those of you who have been trudging along with us for the first two-thirds. And, uh, and I want to remind you, just invite you to stay with us for the next third as we're moving forward. But since it's been so long, I wanted to take a moment and recap the first two-thirds briefly and quickly. And it really began in Acts 1-8, right? Acts 1-8 is kind of that foundational verse for the book of Acts that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and remember, we talked about before that moment, it was just the superstars. It was just the people that God gave a special purpose and a reason to that they were gifted, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. And so that is no small statement. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. For what? What is the purpose? You will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit is given to empower us and enable us to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Christ throughout the world. And we saw that happen throughout Acts. After a short time of waiting, all the disciples were gathered in an upper room where the presence of God filled that room and then suddenly exploded into roughly a hundred pieces falling equally on the heads of each of the disciples, signifying that each of them were called. Each of them were empowered. Each one of them were called and empowered to be a part of this ministry, to be a witness for the gospel of Christ around the world. And then, and then we saw the gospel transform Jerusalem and then impact Judea and spread to Samaria. And then we actually even saw it begin to go to the remotest parts of the earth. A church in Antioch took that bold step sacrificial, faithful, confident step of sending out two of their best, Barnabas and Saul, on the first ever missionary trip to the Gentiles. We followed this map along that journey, that first missionary journey, where we saw amazing transformational things happen within the lives of the people because of the gospel of Christ, but we also saw amazing opposition Paul was chased out of many cities. He was stoned and left for dead. But it wasn't just opposition on those who heard. There was opposition within the Christian movement. Remember, as a result of what God was doing within the hearts and lives of Gentiles, there was trouble back home when Paul got home. There were people that struggled with what, what God was doing in the lives of Gentiles without any sort of action of men, without circumcision, without being committed to the Old Testament Mosaic law. And as a result, there was this Jerusalem council where leaders of the new Christian movement came together and reaffirmed salvation is a result of faith in Christ, not through some exterior work or duty of man. Armed with that updated decision, that confidence, Barnabas and Saul decided they want to go again on a second missionary journey. But that second missionary journey was difficult from the start. If you remember, before they even left, Barnabas and Saul had a disagreement about who should travel with them. So Barnabas went one way and Saul went the other. And then throughout the second missionary journey, it continued to be difficult here in the middle area. There was 
a lack of understanding and clarity on what God wanted Saul or Paul to do. He, Paul wanted to go left and the Holy Spirit blocked him from going left. So then Paul wanted to go right and the Holy Spirit blocked him from going right. And so the apostle Paul just walked with a lack of certainty and clarity of what God wanted. He landed in Troas, finally walked as far as he could. And that's where he got a vision. And the Bible told us that as soon as he had that vision of someone saying, Paul, come to Macedonia and teach us the gospel, where everything came together and Paul had clarity of what God had for him. But that didn't end the difficulty. He was arrested, beaten, and put in prison in Philippi. He went to Thessalonica, got kicked out of Thessalonica, went to Berea, got kicked out of Berea, came down here to Athens, was belittled in Athens. It was such a difficult missionary trip. By the time he got to Corinth over here, Paul described his own state of mind as being weakened, fearful, trembling. Like Paul went into the city of Corinth struggling, but as Paul went limping into that city, God did a miraculous and powerful work in his life. Brought him an amazing team of people, gave him a divine promise, even protected him within that city to when Paul was finished with Corinth. He was reinvigorated in his faith and his commitment to ministry. That's what we finished last week. And now we come to the third missionary journey. And coincidentally, the beginning of our third and final study guide as well for the book of Acts. So let me take a hit pause and Take a moment, remind those of you about our study guides. These study guides are put together and Pastor Jeff, our discipleship pastor, does a, a ton of work putting these together as a resource for you. Uh, they're there intentionally to give you a place to keep notes and thoughts of what God is teaching you and bringing you to bring into your mind during the sermons. They're also armed with introduction material and questions for you to go through throughout the week that we believe that if you want to grow in the image of Jesus, it's going to take more than an hour or two on Sunday. And we need to be walking with the Lord and intentionally allowing him to shape our minds throughout the week as well. These questions are there to help you do that. You can do them on your own with your family, with your work small group. You can do them with your small group here at church. And with these study guides come in three formats. If you're a digital type of person, Brian, I don't need another thing to carry around. You can just download the entire PDF format. Just go to the webpage and look for the series study guide that's on the webpage. If you're like, oh, Brian, that's a lot of work. I'd rather it just be given to me week by week, but digitally. Perfect. Download the Chino Valley Community Church app, and each and every week you can go to the sermon section down at the bottom, and that will be given to you each week. The sermon outline, the introductory period, or notes, uh, the questions at the end, each and every week that will be given to you. But some of you I know are like, no, old school, I need to have paper and I need to have something I can carry along with me. And so we have these print study guides for you that the office works hard to make available to you throughout the series. And we've had them available last Sunday. They're out at the tables as you came in. But I know there's always one person every time that either fails to or forgets to or just for whatever reason doesn't get a sermon guide. And so for this first week and first week only, we'll have it delivered to your chair without much judgment. Uh, so if you are here and you want one of those study guides and you just forgot to pick one up as you came in, raise your hand loud and proud and our ushers will be more than happy to bring one to you. Go ahead, raise it up. I will not belittle you for long. There's one... Uh, and there's always one or two that ought to know better 
you know, but they raise their hand nonetheless. Right over here, thank you. For the rest of us, go ahead and join me in the book of Acts chapter 18. Book of Acts chapter 18. And we're going to begin the third missionary journey. And here's how it begins. Chapter 18, starting in verse 23, it says this, and having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia region, strengthening all the disciples. And here's the map that we're going to be following along through the first missionary journey, just like we did first and second. Here's the map available for you. But I want you to notice at the very beginning, if you're just reading through Acts, you probably even missed the fact that the third missionary journey even started. I mean, there's many people that think the Apostle Paul just did one of those California stops where he finished the second missionary journey, kind of pulled up, slowed a little bit, and then just kept rolling right through. I mean, that third missionary journey, there wasn't a lot of fanfares that started. There wasn't a big time of prayer and fasting. There wasn't a big send-off over as he sailed away on the boat. It just seems like Paul just got up and left. And I want you to notice the focus of the beginning of the third missionary journey. It's very unique. Look what it says. He passed through those regions, strengthening all the disciples. That's his plan. That's his purpose. That's his goal. The third missionary journey. He set out, I want to strengthen the disciples. I want to dig deep and help build a firm foundation for the churches. That term strengthening means to make firm, to prop up for a storm, to establish or correct and ensure a strong foundation for growth. Paul decides, look, I'm going to go back to the churches for the first missionary journey, second missionary journey. I want to go back and I want to strengthen those churches, make sure they're rooted deeply, that they're growing straight, that they're equipped and empowered to move forward in power and confidence of what God has for us. And that was his focus and his purpose. I was thinking this week, do you think that's something we should be paying attention to? I mean, Paul's purpose of that third missionary journey is to strengthen the church, to firm up disciples. And my question is, do you think that's something we should be paying more attention to? In my curiosity, I decided to research. These are uh, just some stats from 2022, the current state of the church. Current state of the church, not just our church, Big C Church in America As of 2022, only one in four Americans claim to be practicing Christians. One in four. And forget those stats of 86% of people claim to be Christians. Those are old. One in four Americans claim to be practicing Christians. Practicing Christian as defined by someone who trusts in the mercy of Jesus Christ, a person who has faith in Jesus Christ and is currently involved in the ministry of the church. One in four. Over the last two years, church attendance across the nation has dropped by a third. So not only one in four people claim to be Christians, churches are one-third emptier nationwide over the last two years. And I shared this with you last week. It's estimated roughly 11 million people every year leave their faith worldwide. Worldwide. 
As I was reading about Paul's focus of strengthening the churches, and I was reading the state of the current American church and church worldwide, it brings me in my head, it brought a question, man, is that something we should be focusing more on? Is it something we should be focusing more on to make sure that our lives and that our families and our churches are, are rooted in truth and strength so we can move forward in power and confidence in the days ahead? And if we were going to be committed to strengthening churches and Christians, what would that look like? How would we do that? As you read that Paul was strengthening disciples, what did he do? What did he come up against? Who did he address? What did he focus on? It's those questions that make me love this next passage. Because the third missionary journey begins with Paul's commitment to strengthen disciples to embolden and dig deep the roots of the church. And the text gives us three groups. Three groups that Paul and the other church focused on and maybe three groups of people that you and I should pay more attention to focusing on as well. The first group we're gonna hear about next, the first group is, is illustrated through a person a person that I call the inaccurate. And look how the Bible describes it. Paul, in this third missionary journey, committed to strengthening disciples. Look at the next verse, verse 24. Within that theme, now there's a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man has been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being equated only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. At the very beginning, first one that we're led to believe under this, we're, we're led to understand. Under this whole guise of strengthening disciples, we interact with a man named Apollos. He's from Alexandria. Alexandria is a famous city, second most important city in the Roman Empire. It's known for its education, its commitment to instruction. It had a library that boasted over 700,000 volumes. I mean, you're talking about a city with the best public education on the man. I mean, Apollos, first thing we'll know about him is this guy was educated. I mean, he had a great education. And look how it describes it. Not only did he have a great education, he was an eloquent man. That Greek term eloquent means he had a vast knowledge of words and how to use them. He not only had this massive vocabulary, but he had this skill to put them together in a way that was compelling and inspiring and attractive to others. Man, Apollos was not just a well-educated man. He was a fantastic communicator. He wasn't just a fantastic communicator. Later on, he says he's fervent in spirit. I mean, he was enthusiastic, charismatic, excited, and passionate about God. I mean, this was a charismatic young man. He was educated. He had great words and knew how to use them. He was passionate, charismatic, could attract a crowd. Man, Apollos was amazing. Look what else it says about him. He was mighty in scriptures. Man, he knew his Old Testament. He was probably sword drill champion of Alexandria. If he played Bible Jeopardy, he'd probably win the Old Testament edition. But look what it says. 
Here's Apollos, this charismatic leader who can attract a crowd. He was educated. He was excited. He had a way of building a sermon that everyone would just find themselves listening to. And he was pursuing God. But look what he says. He's acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he was preaching repentance. But he was missing the gospel. He was missing the power of the cross, the hope of the resurrection, the commission of Jesus. He was a gifted and charismatic leader. But he was missing an important element of his message. He was passionately teaching people of their need to please God, but couldn't really guide them in the direction of how to have communion with God. He was bold. He was eloquent. He's a very gifted young man. But he was inaccurate where it mattered most. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, where people could have communion with God. As we continue, though, there's a big biblical but right there. Describes Apollos, this gifted, charismatic person that can attract a crowd, but is inaccurate in his message. And look what happened. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Man, as this passionate, excited, gifted young communicator was giving majority of the message, helping people pursue God with all of their flesh, but not have communion with God through the Spirit. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside. The text says they explained to him more accurately the truths of God. Explained. They made clear. They set the table for a great meal. They brought the cookies down low. Hey, Apollos, you're 80% of the way there, man, but you're missing the biggest part. They explained to him. They opened his eyes. They helped him understand the way of God more accurately, more accurately to give with precision, with great care to detail. Apollos was gifted, eloquent, charismatic, but he had to be taught and empowered with the message of the gospel. Got me thinking, how are we doing on clarity with the gospel? See, I think we're a church culture filled with Apollos's. I think we're filled with charismatic Educated people who are eloquent, man, they have a great use of words. They can attract a crowd. They have amazing book deals. But their message is inaccurate. I was at a Christian conference years ago where a famous speaker came in and described heaven as the bachelor party of Jesus. And the gospel was your invitation to party with Jesus in heaven. Hey, you don't want to miss the greatest party ever. If you don't want to miss the greatest party ever, come forward. And you can party with Jesus for eternity. There's others. There's others who equate the gospel with free water, for water for all, food for all, health care for all. Social equality for all. 
But what about salvation for all? I think there's even now something that's infused the gospel to where this, there's this political expectation and aspiration and this hope of some political renewal as if the answer to community, the answer to reformation and transformation is that we can put some new world order in power. Man, I think we're in a culture to where we're led by people who are like Apollos. Man, they are passionate, they're fervent, they're exciting. They can attract a crowd. But do they give the gospel? I was at a conference recently, took some leaders from church. I was reminded of a a passage that we went through weeks ago. If you have your Bibles, flip to the left a little bit in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 38. If you remember this passage, Paul was in the midst of his first missionary journeys in the city of Pisidian Antioch. And when he arrived there, he went into the synagogue and the leader of the synagogue invited Paul, like, hey, Paul, do you have anything to say? And that, that was it, right? You ever give a pastor a microphone, that's, you're done. And Paul goes off. He goes off on a sermon that ends up at the end of it, the very next week, nearly the entire city came back for more. It was a message, in fact, people said, hey, Paul, will you come back next week and say the exact same sermon? There's times people text me after the message, hey, Brian, that was a great sermon. Not once have I ever heard anyone say, can you preach that same thing again next week? Not once. Paul preached something that was so profound. People said, not only give it to us again, but nearly the entire city showed up to hear it. It wasn't about social justice. It wasn't about inflation. It wasn't about politics, and it wasn't about end times. You know what it was? It was the gospel. Look how it's summarized. Verse 18, or 38, sorry. Chapter 13, starting in verse 38, after he goes through and describes the power of God, verse 38, look how he summarizes it. Therefore, as a result of everything I said, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. First part, listen, you want to know the gospel, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness that Jesus will pay the consequence of your failure. He will wipe your life clean of any wrongdoing Man, all of your failures, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all the consequences that you have brought on to your life because of your own selfishness, your own greed, your own lust, your own anger, all of that can be instantly paid, wiped clean through Jesus Christ. Man, there is no other message in all of the world with that same power. The gospel, forgiveness of sins, that we're all sinners None of us are righteous. No, not one. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, that is the message of the gospel. He goes on though. He says, not only he offer forgiveness of sins, verse 39, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. It's a freedom that couldn't even be given through the law of Moses. Man, there is a freedom that comes through the gospel that even the law of Moses couldn't provide. You can kill all the goats and sheep and birds you want. It doesn't offer close to the freedom that comes with the freedom of Christ. 
Man, the freedom of Jesus isn't available through the law of Moses, through the Constitution of the U.S., as amazing as that is. Through a presidential pardon, citizenship in any nation, the freedom of Christ rises above all of those. And if we want to see transformation happen, if we want strong Christian lives and homes, if we want to strengthen churches, I think we need to get back to an accurate understanding of the gospel, what it is and what it isn't. The gospel does not promise simplicity in life. It does not promise political power. It does not promise wealth. What it promises is forgiveness of sins and freedom. Man, you are not enslaved to your sin. You're not even enslaved to the political power that God allows to be an authority over you. You answer straight to God, the creator of the world, the author of salvation, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. You go straight to him. That is what God affords you through the gospel. If we want to have stronger churches, stronger homes, Christian homes, and stronger Christians, we have to have an accurate understanding of the gospel. Something I set out years ago to create my own definition. I didn't make this up. This is rooted in scripture. This is my words of how the Bible describes the gospel. The gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe and the revelation of righteousness of God for all to see. Man, the gospel not only brings salvation to your soul, but it creates in you this ability to be a reflection of the power of God to others. It's the power of God that not only rescues mankind from their precarious position of sin, but positions them in a position of power and opportunity to be used by God as a reflection of his glory. The gospel not only picks you up from the consequences of your sin, but he places you in a position as the child of God, declares you righteous, places you in a position of power to be a reflection of his glory and everything before. Man, that is what God is about. The gospel, man, it's more than just a bachelor party in heaven. It's more than just a ticket to eternity. It is this transformational message that will utterly change your life for eternity and empower you for the, for the present. In fact, look at the last sentence. It also, the gospel, enables us to enter into blissful communion with God for this present life and throughout eternity. Man, the power of the gospel, is not something we have to wait for. It's something that transforms us now, today, invigorates us, directs us, empowers us for a message moving forward. And I was reading this message, if we want to strengthen churches, reading this passage, if we want to strengthen churches, we want to strengthen lives, strengthen Christians, maybe it's time that we make sure that we're accurate in what we say. I guess my question for you, are you accurate in your understanding of the gospel? And are you adding things to it? Or are you taking things out of it? The gospel is the hope of transformation. And it's what we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit 
to give. This is our job. First group that Paul had to interact with is the inaccurate. The second group that Paul comes in contact with and has to minister, gets to minister to, is what I call the inconventional. Now, I know it's supposed to be unconventional, but I needed an I word, so I made one up. Okay? That's why Jamie put it in quotes. Inconventional. What that means is someone who is ministering in a way that they're not expected to. Look what happens. You have Apollos. He is this educated, gifted, charismatic leader who can attract a crowd of people, but he's given inaccurate information. And then look at the end of verse 26, but, big biblical but, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And here's what you may not notice. This is the first time Priscilla's name is first. Go back earlier in chapter 18, 18 chapter 2. Look how we're introduced to this couple. Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Says he, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, the husband, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. It's like Priscilla's just an add-on. Hey, he met Aquila. Oh yeah, he's married to this girl. And we're come to find out Aquila, Priscilla was a phenomenal woman in a time where Christian women had very few rights, very few roles. Expected to sit down, be quiet. But look what Luke describes. Here's Apollos. He's this young, flashy, flashy, energetic, popular guy who's fervently, passionately trying to pursue God with all of his flesh tirelessly teaching everyone how to reach out to God through repentance and hope that someday God can save them. And it's Priscilla, the one who should be quiet and silent where not much is expected. Luke leads us to believe that she's an instigator in this. And Priscilla hears that and like, uh-uh. No, sir, and I love it. She takes him aside, her and her husband. I love that. All of a sudden, it's, it's her husband. Priscilla and the guy she's married to took him aside. And they explained the gospel. Man, your heart's right, Apollos. But you're missing the important part. You're missing the final ingredient. It's a donut without the frosting. Why bother? That's why the kids eat donuts from the top down. And look at the result. Verse 27, when he, wanted to across, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures what Jesus, that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos, because of the correction, all of his charisma, all of his gifting, all of his talent, this ability to attract a crowd armed with the gospel of Christ, it exploded and propelled him to be one of the preeminent teachers and apologists for the gospel of Christ in their era. In fact, Apollos got so big, he had a following. It was creating dysfunction within the church because there are some people who's like, no, 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 I don't care what Paul said. I don't care what Peter said. I want to hear from Apollos. He's my pastor. Other people defended Paul. Hey, who's Apollos. Paul learned from Jesus in the desert. 
Paul got stoned by rocks and left for dead and walked back in. No, no, I don't care about Apollos. I want to hear from Paul. Paul had to address it in a letter. Who cares if you're pastored by Apollos, by Paul, by Peter? All of this, all of these are servants of God. It's the power of God at work. Priscilla, an unconventional leader who not much was expected, but she influenced, and because of her influence, led to one of the most prolific Christian thinkers and communicators of their day. My question for you is, who do you need to empower and encourage? I think church is filled with people. You heard the adage, 20% of people in the church do 80% of the work. You ever hear that? I've never studied to see if that's accurate or not. But if it is, if really 20% of the people do 80% of the work, no wonder the church is weak today. Let me show you something the Apostle Paul wrote, Church of Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, please. Book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I said that better. First service, I just bossed him around and said, go to Ephesians 4. Yeah, Yeah, thank you, Ronnie, holding me accountable to that. Please go to Ephesians 4. I don't mean to get all bossy. I just get all excited about it. Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to what the apostle Paul wrote to the church about how to grow. Look at what he says. But speaking the truth in love, that term love, it's agape. That doesn't mean speak the truth as a smile. It doesn't mean speak the truth with kindness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, in community, it's that communal relationship of commitment Right? It's what Paul describes in Corinthians. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. Man, this love never fails. It's this communal love where I trust you to speak into my life and you trust me to speak into yours. It's by speaking the truth in love in that sort of relationship. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Look at verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Man, if only 20% of the church is doing that, no wonder we're weak. Man, if we want to strengthen church, we need everyone to be a part. Everyone doing what they're called and equipped and empowered to do, even if it's just one person. I've shared this story, you know, I've had the privilege of being mentored by my grandfather, the most faithful man I've ever met. I've been mentored and trained by pastors and book authors, and that's all that great, but you want to know one of the most influential men in my Christian life. I've shared this with you before. His name's Don Jones, my third grade Sunday school teacher. He was not the, he was not the trendy children's leader that we all expect He was an old guy. He wasn't very healthy, had a colostomy bag back when all the fancy stuff wasn't available. I mean, this was just an old, unhealthy man. But he touched my life in a way that no one else could. See, I grew up in a church where every month we gathered together and washed each other's feet. Super excited, by the way, to bring that to our church next year. (laughs) Just, Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but every month we gathered together, washed feet. 
was one of the few kids there because I had to go because I got to, got to go because of my grandfather. My dad always gave me the option. See, there's two seats. You wash the feet of the person to your right and the person to your left would wash yours. And again, I'm a third-year-old boy, so I'm not about to touch some stranger's feet. So I always sat to my dad's left where I could wash his feet, but that meant there was always a chair to the left of mine where someone had to wash mine. And a series of months where no one ever sat by me. Who wanted to wash a little kid's feet? I started to notice there's one chair, two chairs, three chairs. It's almost like, oh no, who's going to get stuck washing the feet of the kid? I don't know how long that went. But Don Jones must have recognized it. Because one month he sat right to my left. And he would get down on his two knees. And he would wash my feet. Not one month. Every single month, as long as I can remember. As soon as I sat down, Don Jensen, Bible, right there. Not Don Jensen, Don Jones. Boom, slammed his Bible down, marked his spot. That's mine. I'm washing this kid's feet. A man continued to ask my parents. Once I got married and got into ministry, Don Jones continued to ask my parents, prayed for me all the time until he died. I tell you what, that man was not trendy. He wasn't cool. He wasn't charismatic. He wasn't super eloquent. But he impacted my life in ways that no one else could. I'd like to think that my ministry is different because of Don Jones. Whose ministry could be different because of you? One person. Man, can you imagine if we all just invested, encouraged, empowered one person? Church would explode. And even if you're like, Brian, I'm just a stay-at-home parent. I don't have much to do. Will you disciple, commit, and serve, and build up, and strengthen your children in the name of the Lord? Man, that's Gretchen's greatest influence. Man, if my four boys walk with Jesus better than I ever did, job done. Because I have now quadrupled my impact just through my own children. Your children, your grandchildren, even if all you did was that, help them get an accurate view of the scripture and understanding of their importance to the ministry of God where they would have boldness and confidence knowing that they serve the creator of the world. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Man, if we just did that. But I'm confident there's others of you who are capable of better, who are gifted for more, Perhaps you think it wouldn't be accepted because of who you are, your economic position, your skin color, your language, your education. But what if, what if you were unconventional? In, you just stuck your neck out there to encourage and empower someone else's ministry. Man, it's not competitive, it's not competition. People talk about competing with my boys. I hope my boys are better than me in every way. I hope you guys are better than me in every way. Pastor Phillips up in Northern California, man, I hope that he gets all the book deals and fantastic, hallelujah. 
Pastor Hugh in England, Pastor Nathan in Oregon, who cares? This is the ministry of God at work. What if we're committed to strengthening churches, strengthening disciples? What if we're committed to accurately portraying the gospel of Christ and in an unconventional way, using who we are and what we have to encourage, inspire, and empower others? I think just doing those two things would explode, but there's one more group I want you to meet. It's a group that I call the incomplete. Chapter 19, verse 1, I'm just going to read seven verses. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We didn't even hear that there was such a thing for us, right? That's for the superstars. That's for the special people. Verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, it's into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who is coming after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on him, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. I mean, here's what most people think happened. See, Apollos was teaching the area and Paulos was given an inaccurate message and when you give an inaccurate gospel, you, give, you build incomplete people. You know that, right? When you give an inaccurate gospel, you build incomplete people. I think that gives us great understanding into what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Look what he says, Matthew 7, 21, 23. This passage should haunt us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, they know the password, Lord, Lord. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? He continues, in your name, cast out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Hey, didn't we do all this good stuff? I showed up to church every week. I went through Lent every time. I gave faithfully. I said all these prayers. I prayed to all these people. I voted the right way each and every time. I did all this great stuff in your name. Jesus let me in. Look what he says. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What do you mean? I did all this good stuff. Still dead in your sins. God still sees you as sinful. When we give an inaccurate message, we build incomplete people. Paul comes across these incomplete people. Says, hey, you know about Jesus? No, we don't know about Jesus. We're killing ourselves. We're reading our Bible every day. We're doing Bible study. We're doing all this stuff, trying to find God, and we're still lacking life. I still think there's people like that. I still think there's people who walk this world doing all the biblical gymnastics, trying to get peace with God, and they still feel empty in their soul. A couple years ago, lady came to one of our Easter services. She faithfully went to a Catholic church in another city, but our services matched her cooking schedule better, so she came here. And after Easter, she came here every Sunday following. It was about a year later, her husband, who was a leader in the Catholic church, called me 
want an appointment. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. And he came up to me and he said, and I'm shortening it just because I want to get you out to lunch. In essence, what he said is, my wife's been coming to church here for a year and she has life that she never had before. She's different. What are you teaching? What are you doing? Because she has something that I don't have. I brought him to this passage in Ephesians. He's a good man, leader in the Catholic Church. And he's praying to all these people and doing all these prayers and following all these things. And he's like, I'm, I'm missing something. I said, you're like these guys. Twelve men doing a Bible study, doing everything after God, still lacking life. Because you haven't accepted Jesus. Helped him understand salvation by grace and faith alone. It's not an aspect of what you say or how you live. It's based on what Jesus did in my office. He accepted Christ, left the Catholic Church, started attending here for years. A couple of years ago before COVID, he left to go back to the Catholic Church. You know why? I need to bring life to my family. I learned something here that I didn't have there. I need to bring this back. I don't think he's the only one. I think we live in a culture that have been trained by inaccurate understandings of the gospel and as a result, we have incomplete faith. And people are desperately hungering for God and wondering why they don't have life. They read the passage where Paul talks about this peace that surpasses human comprehension as we place our lives and our cares and our concerns in the hands of Jesus. And they read that and they're like, I don't have that. I'm still more anxious than ever. Can I ask you something? Is your faith complete? Is your faith complete or are you like these Ephesian men good people who loved God but they were missing the gospel. See, I think it's possible that people can be in a great church and still miss it. I believe that's true because of a, a prayer of the apostle Paul, one of my favorites. I've shared it with you before. Let's turn there again. Back to Ephesians. We're going to be in there a week or two because we're dealing with the church of Ephesus. But Ephesians chapter 3. Where after describing the power of God, Paul gives a prayer. Not for people outside the Ephesian church, for people inside. Listen to what he prays. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. He says, for this reason, because of the power of God through the gospel, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. There's that word. Man, I want you to be strengthened, shored up, solidified with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's saying this to people in the church. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints 
What is the breadth, length, height, and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul prays, I just hope you get it. Look how he finishes, verse 20. He says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that already works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Third missionary journey didn't begin with much fanfare celebration. Paul just went with a commitment to strengthen disciples and strengthen churches. I guess my question for you is simple. Where do you need to strengthen your faith? Where do you need to strengthen your faith? Maybe you need to get accurate in the gospel. Maybe you've been duped. Or you've allowed people to add things and attach things to the message of God for salvation. Maybe you just haven't been confident in the gospel and you've been withholding it. Man, now is the time, if we wanna see transformation in our world, if we wanna see children's lives transformed and homes renewed, it's not gonna be through politics, it's not gonna be through inflation, it's not going to be through some political world order, it's going to happen through the gospel. Who do you need to share the gospel with? Stripped of all the special stuff that we've attached to it over the years, forgiveness of sins and freedom in Christ. Maybe you need to be unconventional. Maybe you're sitting here saying, Brian, I, I need to get in the game. I, I've been called and gifted with the Holy Spirit. Who's one person you can inspire, one person that you can build up, one person you can encourage and empower? Man, if every one of us just did that once, Even if it's your child, your grandchild. Man, I was talking to someone today who was just saying, man, Brian, my brother that I never thought would get saved is saved and going to church. One person that you can inspire and empower, the person you think, man, pff, there's no way. Or maybe you're here today saying, Brian, I, I think I'm like those Ephesian men. I, I know God, I pursue God, I know all sorts of stuff about God, but I don't have communion with God. It's common, more common than you think. Yeah, there's no special formula, there's nothing you have to buy, nothing you have to do. All you have to do is open your heart, receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus left heaven and died for. So you would have an opportunity. He paid all of your consequences. He paid all of the bills, all of your debt. All you need to do is receive it and allow him to lead and guide your life. Let's pray. Ah, God, I come before you this morning and I pray for my friends. God, that you would do in their heart what you did in mine this past week. 
God, for those of us who have an inaccurate understanding of the gospel, God, people who have added stuff of ours onto your message or have stripped parts away from your message, God, I pray, give us an open ear, open eyes, that we might understand the truth of salvation. And God, open our mouth that we might proclaim it confidently and boldly as the answer to all things. God, we submit to you. You didn't promise us riches or peace or comfort, but you did promise freedom and forgiveness. God, may you give us confidence in it and boldness in it that we would share it with others. God, I pray for people here who feel they're too old, too young, too damaged, too broken, too poor, too rich. For all these people who question their ability to influence even one person for your glory, God, I pray you give them a boldness. God, embolden their life. Give them a name of one person that they can influence, inspire, and empower for your glory. And God, I pray for people here who have yet to have peace with you. People who wonder if maybe they know you more than you know them. God, people who are tired of chasing you and never understanding that they can finally reach you. God, may you open their ears, allow them to hear the prompting of your spirit, hear, their, hear your call. God, open their heart as they receive your gift of salvation. God, as they repent of their failures, as they just release the depth of their sin onto you. Jesus, may you forgive them as you've promised you would. Jesus, may you give them your spirit that will give them a peace that's beyond human comprehension, a joy that's overflowing. And may your spirit lead them and guide them in your name's sake from this day out. God, I pray, Jesus, strengthen us. Strengthen us in our faith, strengthen our home, strengthen our church. God, allow us to strengthen your kingdom around the world for your glory in your name. For your glory, pray everything in Jesus' name.